Have you ever come to worship or opened your Bible to read it or knelt to pray and the whole time just thought, I'm just not feeling it right now? Sometimes, even for someone who loves Jesus very much, you can hear all these people singing and you can read the true words of the scriptures and you can read true words of songs that are on the screen and hear us all singing them and still be thinking to yourself, God, where is that wonder and that awe that I have had in times past? And there can be a number of reasons why we might feel that way. Sometimes sin just entangles us and we have given our heart to something we should not give our heart to and then all of a sudden we're a little more blind to the glory and the truth of Jesus Christ. And other times it's very different. Other times it's suffering in our lives that have just hit us with punch after punch after punch and after a while you just get kind of stunned and confused and you're trying to make sense of God is good and yet he is doing this in my life and I don't understand and you come to worship and you just don't have much to offer but you want to give what you do have anyways. I was talking to a friend who was going through something like that recently. Emily and I have a really nice intergenerational friendship with a woman who has grown children and her husband as well um, and they have grandchildren. Um, and this particular woman's daughter had, uh, she'd gotten married and had a lot of trouble having children, as some married couples do. Uh, and after years of trying and doctors and things like that, finally she got pregnant and had a baby. And they were so nervous that maybe the baby wouldn't make it, the baby came out just fine. And so this friend of ours is holding a granddaughter and just going through all of those joys that she wondered if she'd ever get to have. Uh, and then got the good news that her daughter was pregnant again with a second grandbaby. And so there was much rejoicing that when there was once sorrow and barrenness, now there is the fruit of the womb right there in her hands. Uh, they were all very happy until she called uh, a little while ago with just bad news about that baby. Um, they had done some scans and the baby's organs were not growing like they were supposed to while the rest of the baby was growing. And they learned then that this baby in the womb had a condition that was very rare and has always been fatal historically. No baby's ever made it through childbirth with this condition. Uh, and so she called me and just, you know, in tears and I don't, I don't know what to do. And she began to explain to me how difficult it was to continue in this relationship with God, how that was affecting her relationship with God, that suffering that she was going through, uh, knowing that her daughter would now was going to start hearing counsel from doctors that were going to start recommending that, you know, it may not even be worth it to carry this baby all the way. And she's got to make all these hard decisions. And she was just gut-wrenched. When something like that happens, it can make your relationship with God more difficult because you're just so confused and so stunned. Is there anything in a season like that that can help you worship God? Anything beyond the trite and bad advice that people give when you're going through terrible situations? There is. And today, we're going to look at how the first words of the Bible, words that I can still remember whispering into my children's church teacher's ear, because I think they were the first words I ever memorized in the Bible, how the very first words in the Bible can give us strength and can warm our hearts to worship when it is very hard to worship God. 
I have been praying that the Lord would use it to fill your heart with great awe and wonder, no matter what season you're in, whether your heart is hard or tired or hurting or glad. And practically, I pray that you'll walk away today a little better equipped uh, to know just what you can do to help yourself worship when your heart just isn't feeling it right. And if you don't follow Jesus, I pray that you will walk away today with a good sense of how worthy of your, his, of your worship he is and that you would turn from your lifestyle and follow him. So if you have a Bible, open it up with me to the very first page. And if you don't have a Bible, grab the Dark Pew Bible in front of you and open it to page one. And let's read the words that should change how we see everything, especially when we're hurting. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word of the Lord. I came across a headline recently that said, the time John Fogarty was sued for ripping off John Fogarty. And so I had to read it and figure out what was going on here. Now some of you know that name, some of you don't know that name. Uh, some of you were around in the 1970s when Credence Clearwater Revival was all the rage and everyone was listening to that swamp rock sound on the radio. Well, John Fogarty was the lead singer of Credence Clearwater Revival and he was the songwriter that wrote most or maybe even all of their songs. So if you know songs like Green River and Run Through the Jungle and Down on the Corner and Susie Q, he's the guy behind a lot of those old classic rock songs that I still love and listen Listen to today myself. And one thing I love about the, a lot of the music he wrote was that even in the era of classic rock that was nothing like purity at all, his lyrics were still largely pretty clean, even though they were popular and well received. Well, fast forward to the mid 1980s, and the band CCR had broken up. They weren't playing anymore. Uh, Fogarty was releasing albums of his own, writing songs of his own, releasing them, uh, and his old record company owned the rights to all the old. Old Credence Clearwater Revival songs, right? So he couldn't do those on his album anymore. He had to write new songs. And like you might imagine, his new songs sounded an awful lot like his old songs, right? That's the way that signature songwriters work. You have a style and you stick to it. And nobody was bothered by this except for one record executive who stood up and said, hey, your new songs sound a lot like your old songs. And I own the rights to your old songs. And so his former record company, Fantasy Records, sued him for writing new songs that sounded too much like the old songs, which he also had written. So it went through court after court, and finally, eventually, the courts came down in Fogarty's favor. But he had spent a little over a million dollars fighting this silly lawsuit, and everybody was bent out of shape about it. And so he countersued the record company. He said, I want my million dollars back that I had to spend because you guys did this frivolous lawsuit against me. And that lawsuit went all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States, who voted nine to nothing in Fogarty's favor that those guys should not have sued him for that. And he got his million dollars back. Not only that, but in the official opinion that the Supreme Court wrote, they acknowledged that Credence Clearwater Revival was one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. <laughs> that lawsuit was ridiculous, and the reason it was ridiculous was that it dishonored the fact that Fogarty wrote the songs. It's common sense, right? If you make something, you get the glory for having made it. 
It doesn't matter if it changed hands. It doesn't matter if somebody makes the money off of it. If you made it, you get the glory and honor of having made it. And that's why if any of you guys are CCR fans and you ever met John Fogarty, you wouldn't care who owns the right to his songs, right? You would just be like, dude, I love your songs so much. You would give him honor. You would give him glory because he's the one who made those songs. Well, God has a very similar point to make when he starts out the Bible saying, in the beginning, I made the heavens and the earth. The one who makes something amazing is worthy of great honor and admiration. If he made it, he deserves to be honored as its maker. And the honor he gets for making it is not the right to make new songs like his old songs. For him, it is the honor of our reverent and awe-filled worship as we approach him. Jesus once says several times that God made everything and it whispers underneath that, and so you are called to worship him. It whispers, look how glorious he is. Come and worship him in the splendor of holiness. And the Bible goes on to say that us worshiping him was indeed the point for which he made it. The point of this verse and the point of this whole chapter is for you to consider creation, the sea crashing and roaring, the seashore holding firm, the ants crawling, the plants sprouting up, the animals giving birth and nursing their young, the trees growing tall, the hills rolling, the mountains standing high with their jagged peaks, the sun setting, the clouds floating by, the stars shining in the sky, mankind ruling it all, and stop and say, wow, God, you are amazing. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how the message of Genesis 1, the message that God made the heavens and the earth, unfolds through the pages of Scripture. Uh, so we're going to be doing a lot of flipping. We'll go all the way through the whole story. Uh, and that's very similar to what we will do for the next six to eight weeks. We are beginning this morning a series through the book of Genesis that we're calling Dawn of the Promise. And the first two chapters of Genesis are loaded with what you could think of as little rosebuds of truth, just little flower buds of truth in there that then unfold throughout the pages of the rest of Scripture. And so for the next few weeks, what we'll do is we'll take one of those rosebuds and we will look to see how it blooms throughout the whole story. For instance, next week we hope to talk about the fact that not only did God make everything, but he made you. And how does that unfold through the scriptures? Another rosebud that's in there is the fact that we are made in the image of God. It doesn't say a whole lot about what that means in Genesis 1, but as you turn the pages of Scripture, that unfolds and the flower blooms. What does it mean that we are made male and female? Well, as you turn the pages, that also unfolds. So we'll do this one at a time for all of these buds until we get through Genesis 1 and 2. Then we hope to take a break and then afterwards come back and walk through the story starting with Genesis 3. Uh, but this week we're looking at the simple truth that God made the heavens and the earth and how the rest of the Bible unfolds to say that the Lord deserves our worship for it. And then how that truth can make all the difference when you are having a hard time worshiping him. So the first way that we know that the creation story is about our worship of him is the wording of this very first verse, right? Now, 
they had to use an economy of words. They couldn't use too many words when these stories were written. It was mostly Moses that wrote these stories. Only so much space in the scroll, can't elaborate any more than he's got to. And yet, rather than start with saying, God made everything, right, three words and we're out, he gets a little more elaborate. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he uses this poetic word pair, the heavens and the earth which kind of ignite our mind into this imagery. The words, the heavens and the earth, are used as a pair around 400 times in the Old Testament. And any time they're used, they're used in such a way as to evoke awe in the readers. And I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, the Lord is talking to Abraham, for instance, and he says to him, not just you'll have a lot of descendants one day and it's going to be great he does say that but then he says i will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens and a blessing to every nation that is on the earth now that's more elaborate that's more imagery right and so you're imagining all the stars in the sky and all the countries around the globe and now it's looking very big that's what those words tend to do in scripture in a very different way moses during the egyptian plagues the text says that moses lifted up his staff toward heaven and hail came crashing down to the earth once again grand imagery and you're just left in awe going ah oh, wow uh, and to give you one more example David says later on to the Lord uh, he says uh, Lord you own everything in the heavens and the earth he says all that is in heaven and on earth is yours and you get a sense when he says that, that God owns a lot of real estate that leaves you in awe. Well, in the same way, the writer here, Moses, is writing this in order to make us say, wow, that is vast. All the stars of heaven, like the whole earth, God made all of that. And so one sentence into the scriptures, we should already be worshiping him in awe and wonder because of this beautiful imagery. The second way we know that creation story is meant to inspire our worship is the way that that sense of awe unfolds throughout the story. There is a rhythm to this chapter in scripture that just moves the heart, right? God says this, and then it happens, and there is evening, and there is morning, the second day, and just, oh, that rhythm just speaks to the heart. And the imagery just comes alive, too. Like, and when you read day one, you can hear God speaking and the light shining forth. Uh, when you hear about day two, you can, you can imagine the water splitting into the sky and into the earth. Uh, when you read day three, you can, you can imagine the plants, I'm sorry, the dry land rising up out of the ocean and so on and so forth. You can see all these things happening in your mind as you read through that story. Now, it would have been just as true if Moses would have just written, God wrote everything, the end. Let's move on to Genesis 2, right? He didn't have to go into all that imagery and all of that detail, but he wants to move our hearts so we say, wow, this is, this is so amazing, this is so cool, so that we will bow our knee in worship of the Lord. So as the story unfolds, we see even more that it was written to reveal God's glory and to inspire our worship. That's important. We need stories like this because that sense of awe and wonder is what is missing in so many churches. Have you ever been to a church and looked around and thought, these people look bored? 
That's not what ought to be happening if we are worshiping the awesome creator who made heaven and earth. And we look around sometimes uh, and we think something's missing. What, what is missing? What do we not have? Oftentimes, what is missing is a sense of just bone-shaking, awe-filled worship of this creator God who made heaven and earth. And so sometimes you look around and, and not understand what is missing, and there are some churches who are trying to compensate for that, right? Like they know that people come to church expecting to be amazed by something, and they're not amazed by the truth that they're hearing, and so we almost feel like we have to become dependent on multimedia and sound and smoke and a laser light show and the whole dog and pony show and everything. We feel like we're dependent on that sometimes because something's got to amaze these people, right? Something's got to capture their attention because people know that when they come into worship, they should see something amazing. So when they're moved into spectators of an awesome show, they at least kind of feel like church is supposed to feel like there was something awesome there. But what would really engage them in worship is a glimpse at how amazing Jesus really is. He is more amazing than a laser light show. The trouble is... He's harder to see. And so we have to do the hard work of showing in the scriptures how awesome he is. We have to do the hard work of singing and worshiping in a way that shows how great and mighty he is because we want to engage people with the truth and the glory of Jesus Christ because he is worthy of our undivided and full-throated worship. So the creation story is written in a way that leaves you breathless leaves you worshiping God in great awe. And later on, the Psalms will confirm in multiple places that that was the whole point of him having made them. And so we're gonna flip ahead and see how this rosebud unfolds through the scriptures now. And so some of you have gotta make a decision now, right? Some of you like to flip in your Bible to wherever the pastor is. And some of you are like, ah, forget about it. I'll watch on the screens, right? Okay, so if you're a flipper, you need to know we're gonna flip like five times in this sermon. And you just gotta decide right now. I'm either gonna try to keep up or I'm just not gonna worry about it. Okay, we're gonna start with Psalm 8. So flip ahead if you're a flipper to Psalm 8. And we're gonna look at what it says, confirming that our worship of Jesus was the whole point of God having made it. Sounds like a lot of you are flippers. All right. Okay, so it unfolds a little bit here when the psalmist writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. There's that word pair again, the earth and the heavens together. Right, so this psalmist is seeing how great God's glory is revealed in both the earth and the heavens and is worshiping him as a result. We'll skip down to verse three where he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? So the psalmist is looking up at the night sky and saying, wow, God is great and I am small. 
And so we have it confirmed then that that is one of the reasons, at least one great reason why God made all of this stuff and all of those stars in the sky is just so that we would look at them and be amazed at who he is. Have you ever seen some of the pictures of deep space that the Hubble photograph, or the Hubble telescope has taken? You ever seen some of those pictures from NASA? We'll throw one up here now. This is of uh, two twin galaxies together. Uh, that some uh, really inspired person named ARP273. Uh, but when you look at that, I mean, all those stars, many of them have planets around them, temperatures that range from hotter than we can imagine to colder than we can imagine, brighter than we can imagine to darker than we can imagine, volcanoes exploding, chemicals, probably none of it inhabitable by mankind, and if it is, then there's no food there, so we still wouldn't last very long, and yet we could spend an eternity exploring and learning about the thing if we were only able to. Sometimes you look at something like that, and on one hand, your heart is saying, wow, and on the other hand, you might be thinking, but why? Like, why did, why did God make that? Like, we can't even get to it. It was out there for who knows how long before we even got to pointing a telescope at it. It's just a speck in our sky. That no eye had even seen it until then, and there are who knows how many more that no eye has still ever seen. Why, why did God bother to make something so intricate and so vast just so we could look at it? Well, wow is why. That's why he made it. So the people like us would sit here right now and look at it and read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and say, wow, God is incredible. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And the cool thing is that this wonder goes from something that big all the way down to the smallest detail, too. We'll show you another picture here that, that demonstrates that. Let's go into the next picture. Look at this. This is, I mean, can you see all the stuff that's like flaking off of that? All of that texture on the top. I mean, it looks almost like a honeycomb or a pillar or something incredible. You know what that is? That's one strand of human hair. That is the detail that God put into every single hair that is on our heads. Is he amazing or is he amazing? His glory is shouting from the rooftops and it is tucked away in every little corner of the universe so that you cannot miss it. And it is all calling us to give him the all-filled worship that he is due. Well, the Psalms say that in a few other places, too, and they talk about the earth as well as the heavens, but we'll move ahead to let the concept unfold. We're going to flip, actually, a little bit backwards this time, just a few pages, to Psalm 30, I'm sorry, not Psalm, Job 38. That's probably like two or three pages back in your Bible. And as we get there, we're going to answer the question that I asked in the very beginning. Remember, I asked, is there any word that can comfort someone who is suffering that much? Is there anything that can move you to worship God in that difficult season of suffering? Well, we're going to find that answer here in Job 38. The story of Job, if you've never read it before, is that Job is a great wise man who loves the Lord. He's the epitome of a God-fearing sage. He's the one you should go to for advice. He has almost everything under the sun, great children, a wonderful wife. Life, lots of property, lots of possessions. And in one fell swoop, the Lord takes it all from him. 
right? And God sovereignly decides to let Satan do this. I'll let you attack him, take all his kids. All of his kids die within a few minutes of each other. His wife turns on him and says, curse God and die. And that's the last you ever hear of his wife in that story. Uh, he's there weeping. And then the Lord lets Satan afflict him physically too. And so he's breaking pots and scraping off the boils on his body all of a sudden, suffering so much. His friends come to comfort him. And for, many, for quite a while, they remain silent in front of him. And every, all the advice they give him is great until they start opening their mouths later and talking. And then they start spouting all kinds of nonsense at him. So for, for like three dozen chapters, his friends go on and on and back and forth. And you know, I don't know if you've ever been suffering and had friends say things to you that aren't helpful, but Job had the very same thing happen to him. Uh, and by the end of it, he's confused, he's stunned, he doesn't know what to say to God, he probably says some things to God that he shouldn't have said to God, and finally, in the midst of that pain and confusion, finally, God speaks. And his words begin in Job 38.2, and in them you find the answer to those of us who are hurting so much that it's hard to worship. He says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you will instruct me. Right? So who's in charge, right? It's established. God is in charge. He's asserting his authority. Okay, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or you stretched a line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb, when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and I set a bolt and doors, and I said, this far you shall come, but no further, and here shall your proud waves stop. He's talking about the seashore there. And for two whole chapters, he goes on like this. Job, did you command the morning? Have you walked down to the bottom of the seas that I made? Hey, do you know where the storehouses are, where I keep the snow and the hail that has not fallen yet? Did you make the rivers? I mean, on and on. Does the rain have a father? Hey, can you reach up into the sky and find Orion's belt and loosen it for me? Can you even count the clouds that I've made? What about the lions that I've made? What about the mountain goats giving birth and nursing their young? Can you tame animals as easily as I can and set them free like I can? Did you make the ostrich silly enough to forget its eggs? Did you give the horse its strength? Did you give the hawk its flight path? And finally, he stops. And he lets Job speak. And Job just says, you are too awesome. I cover my mouth. And then God fires up the engine again for two more chapters going on and on again. This time, half of it about the great beasts and all sorts of details about them and then the great sea creatures and do the great sea creatures ask you for food and look at their fins and look at all those fantastic things about them. It, is, it wears you out and it's supposed to. It's the breathtaking, jaw-dropping majesty of God. When you hear him talk about his creation as he does in Genesis 1, it's meant to leave you breathlessly in awe of him so much that you can look at the sufferings in your life, the ones that you can't make sense of, and you can respond like Job did and say, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And that is like water to a dry and hurting heart. 
So if you're suffering and confused by it, and you're wondering why God wrote the story the way he did, an answer that can quiet your heart begins in Genesis 1. Look at his creation. You know, my friend that I mentioned earlier who was having that trouble with her grandbaby, um, when she called and told me that, that conversation ended with her saying, okay, I, I gotta go, I just, I just pulled up at the parking lot in the beach. And she was gonna go walk out on the beach and stand there in front of the ocean and just talk to God about it. She knew intuitively what she needed. She needed to go stand before God's creation and just, ah, okay, God. Okay, I get it. You are great, and I am small. And a lot of us know that intuitively too, right? And this, this passage, I think, confirms that. If you are suffering and you need help worshiping God, one of the best things you can do for yourself is just go experience creation and let it amaze you. Go for a walk in the woods and then open up the Psalms and read a few of them. Go lay under the night stars and just see this vast creation that God has made and see if that speaks to your heart and warms it up to worship again. So that's how the creation story can warm your heart to clarity if you're suffering and confused. Uh, Let's look at the New Testament now where we are gonna learn something amazing about this God that created the earth. Flip with me to John 1, if I haven't lost you on the flipping yet. The book of John chapter one. Look at the first three verses there. John is writing a biography of Jesus, who is this man that many had heard of in that day and they wanted to know more about. And this is how he starts out the story, and he starts with in the beginning as well. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And W is capitalized as if it were a person or maybe even a God. So. In the beginning, there is someone referred to as the Word who is there with God as things are being made. And then the next little bit is really amazing, and the Word was God. So there is this other person who is there with God as things are being made and is God. It says, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And he goes on to tell us who that word is. It is that man, Jesus, that they are reading about. In the very beginning, Jesus is with God, and he was God. And in a a little bit later, one of the epistles will say, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, there's that word pair again, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. And so now we know that this God who is worthy of our worship has a name and has come to earth and has dwelled with us with hair and a beard and sweat pores and fingernail clippings and eyes that can look at you, a real live man walking the earth named Jesus. And so the story is a little more developed now, isn't it? Now, instead of every little bit of creation whispering, worship God, now it's developed to the point that it's saying, worship Jesus Christ, 
All of creation is calling you to worship God made man, Jesus Christ. And that is why in Revelation, many are gathered around the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Because of those things, he is worthy to receive the worship of every single person. And so as the apostles are walking out in the book of Acts, they call people to come and worship Jesus, and they ground that in creation. They say, turn from these vain things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So now we are called not just to worship God, but to worship Jesus Christ because of the glory of creation. So Let me review how it's unfolded so far. We start with God made the heavens and the earth, and wow, lots of imagery. The Psalms confirm for us that the whole point was that we should worship Jesus Christ, or we should worship God, I'm sorry, in honor and in glory with reverent awe. Job helps us understand that that can help heal the suffering heart, and now the New Testament is saying, you're not just called to worship God, you're called to worship God made man in Jesus Christ. And so, we have one last point to make, and it is in the book of Romans, chapter 1. Turn with me there if you'd like to, to Romans 1. What we're going to see here is that not only is every person on earth called to worship Jesus Christ, but every person on earth is accountable to worship Jesus Christ. In other, in other words, every person must worship Jesus and is accountable if they have seen the glory of creation and do not worship him. In Romans 1 verse 18, the Lord writes this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. So I'll stop and and follow the logic there. He's saying, What should be known about God, that God is amazing, God is awesome, is made evident to every person through creation, right? If you've ever seen a sunset, you have enough evidence to know that there is an awesome God out there worthy of your worship. If you've ever looked up at the night sky or just felt a blade of grass and it evoked awe in your heart, you know enough to know that you should be worshiping the God who made this. And so he says to not do so is to suppress the truth. And that's what he says as he goes on in verse 21. He says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but became futile in their speculations and foolish, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So he's saying that what every person has done is has seen the glory of God or at least heard it in the woods or felt it in a blade of grass and known they should be worshiping God but suppressed that knowledge and that truth 
and instead fallen down the road of all sorts of vain speculations. There have always been alternative creation stories since the beginning of time. The Babylonians have one and the Egyptians had like 45 that were all contradictory that you can't even make sense out of. And they move from those speculations into worshiping something that they can find because we all want to worship something. And in those days, it was carving statues out of created things and worshiping them. Well, in our day, it's suppressing that truth that's revealed in the glory of God and then falling into what are usually scientific speculations, right? Putting the burden on the natural sciences to answer supernatural questions for us, right? Asking physics to answer questions about metaphysics, which is speculations. It's futile. The natural sciences can't tell us about supernatural acts. They can only tell us about natural things. But we go ahead and speculate with them anyway in a way that is futile, and it winds up darkening our hearts. And because we believe that we have the power to figure out how the earth was made, instead of worshiping other statues or creatures or things like that, we wind up worshiping ourselves and thinking that we are the greatest and smartest things around. And all of a sudden, our human flourishing becomes the goal of society, which leads you to right where we are as a culture right now. When the truth is, the God who made ARP 273 and all the other galaxies out there, down to every ant that crawls on the earth, that God calls us to worship him and have a glorious relationship with him. This letter called Romans in the Bible uh, goes on to outline the good news, but it starts with news that's really hard to hear. It starts with news that I think you can see the justice in. If you're suppressing that truth that God made everything and you must worship him, uh, I think it's fair then to even look at verse 18 and see that the wrath of God is revealed in the scriptures and it is upon you because you see his glory and refuse to worship him. And what this book will go on to say, I encourage you to read it if you never had, what it will go on to say is that we have sinned against God and you have sinned against God by refusing to worship him. But God himself, Jesus Christ, died to offer you forgiveness for that sin. And by his death, you can come back and have a worshipful relationship with the God who created the universe. And if you take that offer, you're beginning to worship him again, and you're beginning to call him Lord again, and he calls you to follow him and worship him with us or with a church in your hometown. So because of the way that the imagery in Genesis 1 points us toward all-filled worship, and because the Bible goes on to say that the heavens and the earth proclaim God's glory and for which we must worship him. And then because the New Testament teaches that that God has a name, that it's Jesus Christ, we can say that Genesis 1 was written to call you to worship Jesus Christ with awe-filled reverence. And so if you want a really good concrete way to respond to this, uh, I'll give it to you. Whatever, any kind of state of just difficulty of worshiping God that you might be in, if you need help worshiping God, uh, let me just advise you to spend some time this week in front of creation and just let it awe you and wow you. Uh, where would you do that? Think for a second. Would you walk through the woods to do that? 
Would you go climb up to a mountain and look down? Would you go to Brown County State Park? Would you drive all the way to the beach or to the Great Lakes and stand in front of them? Would you lay under the night sky? How would you experience creation in a way that would move your heart toward awe? Whatever it is, if you need help worshiping God, go find it. Go look at it. Let it humble you and show you how great God is. And then open the Psalms and start reading them. If you don't follow Jesus, I called you a minute ago to turn from your lifestyle and follow him, and the way that looks like, really particularly, is believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, uh, and that his work on the cross is powerful enough to save you. Turning from whatever your lifestyle is now to follow Jesus and all of his ways, and then being baptized in his name and joining the church as a way of saying, I belong to Jesus now. Uh, come talk to me or to the person that brought you here about that. If you're interested in that, we'd love to talk to you about it. But if you're not willing to do that and you don't follow Jesus, I want to challenge you to do something else instead. I want to challenge you sometime this week or next week, next time the sky's clear and the moon's not out, lay under the stars for 10 minutes and just look at them. And set a timer if you have to. 10 minutes goes by, okay. And then find a Bible and read the passage we just read from Romans 1, 18 to, I think it's 25, 18 to 23. Read that after having looked at the stars for 10 minutes and just see if the Lord speaks to you through that. One way or another, God speaks through creation to tell us that he is worthy of our worship. Let's pray.